Mother Knows Death presents External Exams with Nicole and Jemmy. On our first episode of Mother Knows Death, we talked about the death of Matthew Perry, and this week his autopsy report was released. And since he had such a big history of addiction, I thought it would be perfect to talk to my friend, Dr. Bruce. Hi, Dr. Bruce. How are you? Good to be here. Thanks so much for being here today. I first met Dr. Bruce doing his podcast, actually. I was on an episode of Weekly Infusion. That's when I first met you. And then you came to Philly and we went to the Muter Museum together. That was fun. That was great. So so let's tell them a little bit about your history. You have been an emergency room doctor for a majority of your career. And how did you get into addiction how how well not addiction yourself into the specialty of addiction what was it that was intriguing well, about that i mean that's a good that's a good statement <laughs> how to get into addiction addiction medicine uh most people are either codependents or recovering so i was in the codependent i got some great codependency stories but anyway i was i did internal medicine training uh residency and took boards and immediately during residency this is back in the 80s um, there were a lot of guys that were like gung ho for excitement, moonlighting in emergency departments. So I was out in Riverside, San Bernardino County, and, um, there were a group of us, we'd moonlight at Riverside County hospital ER. And then once the, I finished internal medicine, passed boards, and then some of the people at Loma and said, Hey, let's start an emergency medicine training program. And so it's like back then there weren't that many residencies. It was in, it was sort of a a new area of sub of specialization. So um, we started the residency program and we had to pick an area that I teach. And I thought, well, drug overdose and toxicology, that's great, interesting stuff. So I went to some meetings at UCLA, this is about 1985. And the first lecture was, I don't know if they called it sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but it was a doctor in addiction medicine talking about youth culture and adolescent addiction. And I was like, blown away as I came there to hear about boring drug, I mean, you know, not boring, <laughs> but, uh, drug overdose and toxicology. And, and then this guy's talking about, you know, um, you know, at that time, the Grateful Dead was still touring and they had the docs that went with the Grateful Dead. And, you know, and then you had, it was all, it really melded youth culture, music, all these interesting things together. So I, I went up at the end of the lecture, I said, what is this addiction medicine thing? And so I sort of started i had some training and i got a position doing addiction uh, adolescent addiction medicine out in redlands within a year and um it did it alongside of emergency medicine along the way and worked with some great people at usc adolescent medicine department and met drew dr drew that's how i met him at k-rock and i was sort of his fill in by virtue of keeping my mouth shut when he <laughs> did love line for for decades and, um, and that's it. And it's still to this day. So I don't do emergency medicine anymore. I quit during COVID cause I'm not a first responder hero. I wasn't a hero. I was a, I was a, a wimpy <laughs> guy, but I'm doing a ton of, um, so I do addiction medicine for a large medical system. I'm still out in Redlands Riverside. And a lot of what I do is around opiate addiction, use disorder, they call it and chronic pain or both. And use of buprenorphine or suboxone subutex, which sort of segueing back into the um, autopsy toxicology report on Matthew Perry, 
And coincidentally, you know, ketamine is just coming to the, uh, it's, it's very popular for treatment resistant depression and for chronic pain and, you know, looking at that whole receptor system and addiction, lots of exciting things happening. But, um, since his report, I've gotten some, I have a lot of chronic pain patients that are on buprenorphine, suboxone, subutex, butrans for, uh, chronic pain. And they also get treatments with ketamine. And so some very, very concerned patients are like, oh my God, am I going to die? I'm getting my ketamine infusion. I'm on, on buprenorphine. Um, so, and the answer, okay, of course, we'll get, we'll get into yeah. that because I have, I actually have a lot of questions about that combination and, and if that's yeah. a common thing, but we'll, we'll get into that a little, um, in a little bit, but first I wanted to get started with just the basics of addiction, because I don't really have anyone in my immediate family that, that struggles with addiction and including myself either. So I don't know it on a personal level. So I do have questions about it. I, I'm a parent. I know you're a parent too. And and one of my biggest fears is like my one of my kids is going to grow up and, and fall into one of these addictions. And I guess my first question for you about that is, is, is this something that could happen to anyone? I, I mean, Matthew Perry said that when he was 14, he started drinking alcohol. And by 18, he considered himself like a hardcore alcoholic. Is this something that could happen to anyone? Or do you think that there's some kind of like predisposing factors that that make a person more susceptible to addiction? Yeah, certainly there's biology, right? So first, if your father or mother, alcoholic or first degree relative, um, and then there are issues with exposure. So um, if somebody starts drinking when they're 14, if they get, if they have the availability of alcohol or drugs and they start using them, then you, you know, then you stop the psychosocial development, you arrest that way. And it's a matter of it becoming something that's, you know, that's routinely done. So, I mean, adolescence is a great thing to talk about because uh, if you have a very structured existence, if you're, you know, if you're home every evening and your parents are aware of what you're doing and they know your friends, parents and keep track of you and you don't have that exposure, but what it, what it amounts to there's, you know, there's junk science around brain scans, but, um, if you look at people, they did a study where they took, and this, I'm just sort of generalizing it, but say 20 young adult males and they had a control group who had no first year relatives that were alcoholic. And then a group who, whose fathers were alcoholic and they were not yet regular drinkers got them all drunk, stuck them in a functional MRI. So we know the area of the brain that lights up with cocaine and heroin, the reward area in the midbrain. And in a st statistically significant um, proportion, the first, the sons of alcoholics had a lot more activity there. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's sort of a, a gross representation of the biologic nature of it. But if I, I don't, you know, you, you can both be sitting having a couple of beers at whatever age and and what do you ask the other guy? Well, what does it feel like to you? And so, you know, one way is to look at what part of the brain, you know, amount of dopamine release, serotonin, neurotransmitters, activity in the reward center. So we know that there's a different, uh, there's a different reaction or activity from alcohol. So, so the 14 year old, like Matthew Perry, I don't know is, you know, and again, if there's uh, childhood trauma, if there's sexual abuse, physical abuse, 
pre-adolescence, that's another risk. There's a bunch of these different risk factors. So there's no one, one uh, addiction. There's no one addiction gene, but certainly the biology is there. And then if you figure, you know, I've had patients that say the first time I got drunk as a teenager, I knew that's what I'm, you know, it was just like, I never felt normal until that point. And I immediately was often going after whatever substance it is. So, so that's a, so, and then it, Go ahead. So that's a very roundabout way of partially answering your question. Which well, is- my my question is, especially talking about that particular study, do you think that there could be some aspect of it, it not being biology, but just nature, just just being around a dad? You you saw your dad drink their whole life, and and maybe some s- sort of center lights up in your brain because it it makes you think of like a positive. Um, Oh, experience when you were a child or something. Right. So, you know, there's conditioning and certainly that would, and then a dad that drinks with a certain effect or is, you know, is he a binge drinker and, and, uh, abusive intermittently, or is he a daily drinker and abusive every day or neglectful? It's so complex, but we know the, you know, and the, and then again, what about, you know, bonding the first couple of years, attachment theory. So these things all come into play. And, um, there's no doubt separating them is difficult, but you're right. There's the, there's parental modeling and then there's the, the genetics there. And then there's the exposure, very complicated, right? So do you feel as if any drugs, I I mean, I sound like a commercial from, from the eighties when I was growing up, but do you feel that there's like gateway drugs, cigarettes, um, alcohol or anything that starts a, a, a child because you you have children that eventually turn into one of these addicts is there some kind of like predisposing thing that you might see prior to an addiction starting well, so- you know again it's that mood altering effect and obviously anybody that gets cocaine or heroin or methamphetamine it, and it depends how much but i mean you get, you're going to get that immediate rush and the euphoria and once that part of the brain, the lizard, I call it the lizard brain, recognizes that, then, you know, is it going to be available the next week? Is it going to be a year later? Because adolescence is a time when you, you know, there's, there's no rehabilitation if you haven't habilitated, if you haven't had the normal development that occurs. So the exposure piece of it, again, is if, if a kid's, is there a gateway drug? I, I say whatever drugs, like for me, I tried pot when I was 15. I hated it. It's like just, and you know, I, it was not something I was going to get addicted to, but you, you get a kid with the biology where they get more, uh, you know, dopamine, whatever it is that causes, there's some euphoria there. That's going to be a gateway drug. So to me, it's at that age, if you start having reward and euphoria from something that it's like, if you, if you, uh, just like with, with cell, what's the problem with smartphones? What's the problem with, um, online gambling? Is that immediate dopamine rush, whether it's, you know, and kids watching, what's the average age for a kid watches porn in North America, eight years old. Um, that is that, is that real? Yeah. Oh my I God. I believe that's right. Oh and I, I'm God. sure, I'm sure, you know, I'm sort of generalizing a lot of stuff, but the bottom line is the more immediate the response is to a stimulus where you get dopamine, you know, whatever, dopamine, glutamate, release of, you know, these pleasure neurotransmitters, the 
and if a kid doesn't have, uh, you know, they haven't built up any defenses, they haven't learned to, you know, fend for themselves uh, in difficult situations, you know, that, that growth, the process, the three stages of adolescence, early adolescence, mid, late, if they can't get through that, they, you know, the sooner, the earlier they start, that's sort of where your psychosocial development arrests. So it gets very complicated. It's like a dysfunctional home, a using parent, pre-adolescent abuse. Um, no, I mean, a lot of therapists will say, well, how is, you know, what, what went on during your mother's pregnancy with you? You know, was, was it a very, was there a lot of stress? Was there high cortisol? All kinds of ways of looking at it that put you at risk. So, but to me, I, you know, what's the worst drug? It's the one that the kid starts using. I, in this day and age, I worry about poisoning, right? It's like fentanyl, carfentanil, sufentanil, whatever these things are out there. These are, there's this whole other other expanse of risk that comes from just being exposed one time and dying. So that that's the, you know, with my kids, they're a little older now, but even even in their 20s, I say, look, it's it, one dose, you know, you go to a party and somebody says, hey, try this pill or, you know, pot. I, there's disagreement, you know, that whether there's fentanyl in pot, but definitely in cocaine, definitely any any pill you get, the Xanax, the the Norcos, the, um, the Oxycons, these, these people that, whether they're cartels or whoever's uh, selling the drugs, they have pill presses that make identical pills to the pharmaceutical, but they throw fentanyl in there. So that's the one thing with that. I don't think we thought about as much prior to this whole fentanyl scourge is poisoning. And so how many kids, they go to a party and friend says, Hey, try this. You know, it's like, they're dead. Fentanyl is well, just- I think that's why I'm so scared because I was that kid. Right. Like I, I've, I've done, <laughs> I did all that stuff when I was a teenager and never like my older daughter. She is she's just a very she listens. Like if you say don't try drugs because you can get you can get killed and stuff. She she listened to that. But I was that kid that was like, that ain't going to happen to me. That's what's that's what's scary because. You hear about this all the time on the news and stuff. And parents d- just so distraught, obviously, because their kid wasn't even doing drugs, really, just like trying something, and they just died taking it once. It's so scary. Yeah, my a friend of mine, his his mom, she passed away. She was like a hundred and one, but um, there was a delay in putting her plaque up or something. So they were at if, wherever you know the the cemetery, the mortuary, and. They were at the marketing person's desk or something, but she said they had some sort of a video and it, it would show a picture for a few seconds. And then the next one, and these are people that had passed away. And my, she's a, she's a nurse and uh, her sister was, you know, had a substance issue. So she, she was very, uh, you know, curious about all these young people that she saw and they were sitting there for half an hour. She said, just constantly. And she said, you know, it seems like a lot of these people you have that have come through here or buried here are young and they said there's it, she said it's just unbelievable how many young people come in with you know drug fentanyl overdoses so whatever it's just but i hate you know pot i'm pot is just it's it's no longer pot i mean cannabis today is so potent and it's, it's there's so much disregard for it and um that's so what's you know there's it's different now than it was when when it's you know the eighties things started to change when the cannabis you know all these strains that are and then the wax ninety percent THC it's just a 
different, it's a different actor and affects brain development. And, oh, I um, had a situation with, with edible weed that I, I have never, and I've tried some things in my life when I was younger and then I haven't, I haven't done anything since the nineties and except weed. And I took an edible weed too much of it, I guess. And I was like tripping, like I was on acid or something. It was insane. I thought that yep. I was poisoned. It was, it was the most surreal experience and I, I'll never do it again. Obviously it scared the shit out of me. Yeah. Well, you know, it's definitely, um, a, it's definitely a different scenario that what, what was it in a, John Lennon's harmless giggle that he talked about pot, it was like 0.5% THC. And you compare that to who knows how much THC is in some of the L. You just don't really know what you're getting, but I don't know. Oh, yeah. It was, I was, I was like hallucinating. It was terrible. (laughs) I didn't even know that we could do that to you. Yeah. It's technically a hallucinogen. Yeah. And uh, it's one of those things when, when kids start doing that when they're 13 or 14, it's, um, you know, the, the future is not very bright if you're smoking <laughs> that kind of, if you're using that kind of pot every day. Right. So yeah, it's gonna... definitely can't be good for your brain. So you, you deal with all different kinds of addictions, but you, you really, you specialize in the opioid addictions. How, as far as percentages of your patients go, is that the, the most frequently used drug that people tend to abuse nowadays? Um, well, you know, it's still in high school, it's still alcohol, cannabis, right? Uh, pot and alcohol are still, still the most common. Um, cocaine's made a resurgence, uh, ketamine abuse, you know, special K. Um, there's, you know, it just depends on the age group. And you're getting so much more news worthy stories about fentanyl. Again, the overdoses, the, uh, the poisoning, but in, we see most in the hospital system I am, we're uh, seeing mostly adults. And, it, and the question I have, it's like, it seems like there's just much disregard for alcohol and, and cannabis products in, in teenagers. I know, you know, a few decades ago, I was seeing a lot of kids coming in for alcohol and pot problems. And I, I don't know if they're graduating more rapidly to, you know, to methamphetamine, cocaine, but I just, I don't see the referrals in our large medical system. So I'm seeing tons of adults and still, you know, the older adults, a lot of alcohol um, and the, uh, you know, a lot of opiate patients. See, part of it is retention and treatment. So there's an opiate called buprenorphine, Suboxone, Subutex, Zubsol, various names for it. And it's used, uh, you give it on a daily basis to alleviate craving. And those patients stay with you. So we see them every month, every two months for refills and, and they're retained in the program. So, um, you know, with other drugs, generally you get them into treatment, they start working a program, um, you know, and you don't continue to follow them. So you build up a lot of the opiate patients. It's, it's much longer term. Um, and so a patient would come to you that was either addicted to pills or even heroin and Part of their treatment is for you to give them this drug that's kind of, is it to kind of like wean them down off of it? So buprenorphine is an opiate and it was discovered in the 60s and trial. It's semi-synthetic. It's derived from thebane, which is part of the something coming out of the poppy plant. 
Uh, and it was trialed in the 70s. It was released in like 79 or 80 over here for pain. It was another pain opiate. Uh, they didn't really know what opiates, where opiates went in the central nervous system. They didn't discover the first opiate receptor until like 1976. Uh, and then it was like, oh, this is how opiates work. They bind to this receptor. I think it was the mu receptor was the first one. And then in the 80s and 90s, much more understanding of different opiates worked more in different parts of the brain. Um, and this one, buprenorphine, they noticed it had much less activity in this uh, in the cent- uh, the brain, midbrain, um, minimal binding in the respiratory center, the, you know, all, all opiates, it's not really talked about much, but opiates suppress the immune system. They, they decrease the hypothalamic pituitary axis that makes like testosterone, they, they decrease testosterone. Um, and those are big things, uh, immune suppression, respiratory depression, and it turned out the buprenorphine had minimal, like as a sole agent, if I, if you put an IV in my arm and gave me more than the maximum dose, I wouldn't stop breathing, which is crazy for an opiate. If you had alcohol or, you know, a valium or something, it's a different story, but it's, 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 Basically, it's much safer. So they said, in, if you have an opiate addict and they come into treatment, you know, you could offer methadone, which is a potent opiate. They have to go to a clinic, take it every day to alleviate craving. They said, why don't we release this buprenorphine in a higher dose form? Practitioners in their office can uh, dispense it. And ideally, you have the patient go to, you know, NA, 12-step meetings. They have a therapist. You follow them every, it, the recommendation at first was you see them every two weeks and every four weeks. But it was to alleviate craving and it didn't go to the reward center. So this has been out 20 plus, about 21 years. And it's, it was very controversial at first because what people in the recovery field would say is buprenorphine, suboxone, subutex, subsol. You're giving an opiate for an opiate. You're not really clean and sober. And there was a lot of argument. How can you tell me that if you're giving an opiate to someone, they're not getting high on it? Um, but a lot of studies were done and it, and they determine the retention and treatment, the huge difference in retention and treatment and, uh, the, you know, the, the overdose deaths. So basically right now the standard of care is like one to three years on, on Suboxone or buprenorphine or more when the patient's carefully monitored. And, um, it's, that's so in addiction medicine, when you're treating opiate addiction, uh, you, you know, can you take this? It's a sublingual form. It's a, it's a film or a tablet you put under your tongue. And could you take that and inject it and get high? Well, you can get high injecting Benadryl. I've had patients that snorted Prozac. I mean, certainly it's an opiate. And if you misuse it, uh, there are issues, but it has, it really is revolutionized. And, and the reason is, again, I, I'm still totally, totally behind. I tell my patients, it's almost a requirement. You have to go to work a program you need you need to address issues in therapy depending on the patient uh, but definitely 12 step is the foundation but what this type of thing buprenorphine does is when once somebody has an opiate addiction then what we find is the 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 midbrain the part of the brain that tells you to breathe when you and tells you to eat when you're hungry drink when you're thirsty the the emotional areas the message is when they, once you have programmed those areas to get the opiate, when they don't get them, when you stop, the message is up to the cortex. And, and you can re, you could look at brain activity on a functional MRI and you can see 
when someone's in withdrawal, what's happening is there's a tremendous amount of nerve firing up to the cortex, basically, which is what withdrawal is. It's the anxiety. It's, you know, besides the, you know, the opiate withdrawal where you have diarrhea and vomiting and abdominal, so physical symptoms. But, you know, when people say they don't have a, ch- a choice, well, certainly everyone has a choice, but there's so much intense activity from, you know, it's almost like when some, they've done studies looking at dopamine levels in people that are detoxing from methamphetamine, cocaine, and they've compared it to people that are starving or are water, super water deprived. And their dopamine levels are actually lower when they're, when they stop or run a methamphetamine or Coke or, or opiates. So what is the drive to get water when you're water deprived or food when you're food deprived? I mean, it over, it's a, it sort of supersedes all other, anything else you want to do. And that's the impetus or the uh, stimulation from the midbrain up to the cortex, the executive function area when so, so it's not an excuse, but it's an explanation when someone becomes addicted and they use larger and larger amounts when they stop, they're almost like a decorticated animal that executive functionary is not making the choices. So that's the beauty of buprenorphine for me is it, it allows the individual, it sort of shuts off that, you know, lizard brain overdrive to get the substance. And the person needs to take steps to maintain sobriety. They need to work a program and replace the time and energy they're spending getting the substance and being loaded with other activities. And, but that's, I think today it's pretty, pretty well accepted. Even in the 12 step community, it's much more accepted using buprenorphine for, uh, for opiate addiction. So, and that's where, you know, the, I didn't treat Matthew Perry and you're not supposed to diagnose or um, be the doctor for people dead or alive, but you know, I've gotten calls from patients that are, you know, they're on buprenorphine. They had to risk buprenorphine in the guy's uh, forensics and uh, then the ketamine and, you know, I'm not sure what else was in there. But Well, you were saying that with, with withdrawal, there's physiological symptoms as well as you, you have these depression, anxiety and things like that. So he it, apparently he was given the ketamine treatments because he was having like severe anxiety and is that is that something common that would be given to these types of patients is additional ketamine treatments? Uh, so I, okay. So ketamine is, it's not controversial. It's just, there's a feeling that it's, you know, like for anxiety, my understanding and the way our medical organization does it, I mean, for treatment resistant depression, when nothing else has worked, it, um, they've even been, been studies when somebody is, is suicidal, um, giving a ketamine infusion and again, and then also for chronic pain patients. Right. And there's the, the anxiety thing. I, I, I don't, I don't give ketamine. Um, there, I do work a lot. The other thing I do, I work with pain patients that are, um, on opiates and their primary care wants them off or decrease, whatever. And there's a, Buprenorphine, the suboxone is a higher dose form. Buprenorphine sort of first line if somebody needs a daily opiate. So I think he was on it for pain and addiction, but um, using it for anxiety, I don't really understand that that's a, a bona fide indication. Treatment resist, resistant depression and chronic pain are, are pretty established. Certain kinds of chronic pain, but but in his case, there's first of all, the 
the infusions that are given for pain and depression um, and the amounts that were found in his had nothing to do with he had huge amounts in his system like a week after his last his last ketamine infusion so those infusions are much lower dose i think he had pulls in his stomach it, there was abuse so the problem with addicts if you find that something seems to feel good and work at a low dose, then why not take 10 times more? That's sort of, you know, the problem you get into. I don't know all the details there, but uh, the use of ketamine, certainly I used to be a doctor at raves and they'd have uh, a tent and specifically people, ketamine's much safer. Uh, it doesn't affect the respiratory uh, drive that much. Uh, you know, it, when you first give the injection, it can, it can bump up your blood pressure. There, there are various issues, but as far as your breathing, it's it's not a respiratory depressant like other like things like opiates. Um, but when you mix it with, you know, even though like I said, buprenorphine is an opiate, it's it's quite safe in terms of respiratory depression. But when you start, he I think he had some benzos like Ativan or clonopin in your system. When you put other when you mix these things together, and then his ketamine was very high dose, then you that's when you get into real problems. Whether he had coronary artery disease. When you use a lot of ketamine, you can you can spike the blood pressure. You can get an arrhythmia. I mean, I ketamine's a great thing for setting bones. It's a short acting thing. But I know when I in, in ER days, uh, um, you'd have somebody on a cardiac monitor, an O2 sensor. You'd have a you know, I mean, it was like a critical care bed they were in it and so that's when you would give it when like if someone came in with a broken bone and you were trying sure, to put it. Like something yeah. that you had to put them in an extreme amount of pain just to get them to right, like not right. be Propof paying attention. <laughs> yeah, propofol, milk, milk of amnesia, you know, the white stuff, like those are much safer. And ketamine, you know, the residency training program I was on in, in the 90s, I think we were the first, I was just part of the faculty group, but um, we were probably one of the first people to use it. It wasn't being used until the 90s and we started using it for uh, the first study re trial we did was for um, pediatric anesthesia in the emergency bar because it's, uh, you know, the, the immersion phenomenon where, you know, adults get it and they, when they're coming out of it, they, they have nightmares and they have to be sedated and stuff. Kids don't really have that so much. Um, and basically there's some secretion issues initially. It's a very safe anesthetic. Okay. But the anesthetic dose is much higher. Uh, you know, what you're using for uh, for depression and stuff like that, it's like I don't know half milligram per kilogram, and then for IV, and then for uh, you know for for the dissociative state, you're up you know I don't know two to four milligrams per kilogram. It's it's a much higher dose IV. So so when he was going to get infusions, obviously you weren't treating him, but w if he was to get this like therapeutic low dose, would he feel high at all from that, or that it's so low? you wouldn't really even notice. No, it's mood altering. And I've talked to pa some patients like the way it feels. Others are very uncomfortable. They don't like the way it feels. Feel They don't like the way it feels at all. Um, and again, you know, K-holing, it, it was sort of a rave alternative drug, you know, with MDMA raves and people would snort it and take it in pills. Um, but those were usually much higher doses. And it was, it, it's sort of like when you think of, um, um, you know, PCP, like dissociative. So you don't feel connected to your body. 
you could do anything to the body and you don't feel it because it dissociates your brain from the body. So it's that kind of ketamine, PCP, very similar. Um, so when, but what I'm saying, yeah. And I had a, I have some very bright patients and I have some very down the line into the road with chronic pain patients and they have a lot of questions. And I have one that was considering amputation. He had a very sort of a rear cup, CRPS complex regional pain syndrome. And he's looking into everything possible, but you know, he's concerned with ketamine. He goes, you know, I don't want to get, a lot of people say, I don't want to get addicted. And, um, you know, if it feels good, am I going to want to do it more? There's the way it's given medically, you know, it's certainly a possibility. And if someone has an addiction history, it's not something, you know, you have to be very careful with it. Um, yeah, that's what I was wondering. Like, why, if someone has such a strong, I mean, he had such a strong history of alcohol addiction and then the opioid abuse that why would you, why would you give them a medication that that's known to be abused, I guess? That was one of my questions, but, um, I, you know, I may be ignorant. I don't know. I really don't know why they were giving it. Was it, was he in such a state with his depression that it was considered sort of a last resort? Was it for some chronic, I'm think I know he had, I assume he had chronic pain issues. Um, and yeah, I mean, it would be a consider. it would be something to take into consideration. So his and assistant sure said it was for a for depression and anxiety, but yeah, I mean he, you know, he had multiple surgeries because he had bowel obstruction from the chronic constipation from the opioid abuse. He had he had a back injury. Um, yeah, he had he had multiple surgical adhesions. He was probably in pain for sure. So, but that wasn't reported as to why he was taking it, but. You also see this thing with with celebrities and famous people that they get this VIP treatment that normal patients don't get. Yeah, absolutely. And well, I was also, wondering that too. <laughs> right, there was a a guy I knew that was hired to be with a certain very famous rock musician, and um, he would stay with the guy at the guy's place, and um, you know, they have so much power and money. The guy would get, and this was back in the nineties, but these FedEx boxes would come with Demerol in them and stuff. And the guy eventually, you know, died. But my friend was very high power interventional. He did interventions and he worked with, you know, fortune 500 companies and, you know, various behaviors, uh, people on the board that developed, uh, drug or porn or gambling addictions and, uh, but he couldn't do anything because this guy, you know, the, the hangers on and the, uh, you know, the gophers and, uh, it undermines it undermines their ability to get treatment or to stay sober. So. This episode is brought to you by the gross room. If you love this podcast and you love my Instagram account, you will love the gross room. Every week, we have lots of cases of articles discussing celebrity deaths and high-profile deaths. And since we are going on our fourth year, you have thousands of photos, videos, and articles to catch up on. Treat yourself this holiday season to gross. Do you think that 
because at the time of his death, people were in his life were seemed to be a little bit shocked about it because it seems as if he had been sober for like 19 months. Do you think my question is why why start a new drug instead of just going back to the one that you knew? Um, is it because of like shame and embarrassment to say, oh, I'm not sober anymore? Or did he think maybe because he was allowed to get that treatment that it wasn't it wasn't bad he just was taking a right. little bit more i mean it could be a, a number of things he may have exactly considered himself to still be clean and sober i'm doing it i'm take it it really helped my depression i'm gonna treat myself i don't you know i don't know was he getting high sounded like he was you know he had quite a bit in the system um and there's look Ask anybody that struggled with an addiction and what, what was there, you know, they talk about stinking thinking, right? It's like, what was, how did you rationalize, um, you know, was it just effort? I'm going to go get loaded or maybe I can get loaded and nobody will know because it's ketamine and I'm already on it. I mean, there's a, who knows? And I, was it, did he have a heart attack? I mean, was it an, an arrhythmia and he's, you know, in the, uh, in the hot tub, you're in the hot tub and you're, you know, you're getting dehydrated. I mean, there's all, all the speculation. So. Yeah. I mean, he, he had, um, I, did you, I don't know if you, uh, you saw the report, but he had, he had emphysema. Right. I, I mean, pretty extensive emphysema. I spoke two packs of cigarettes a day, which, you know, nobody ever wants to talk about how bad cigarettes are on the body, but there was that. And then he had, uh, in his LAD, he had 50 to 70% uh, focal occlusion, yeah. which- You've which, seen a bunch of those on autopsy. Yeah, so. exactly. You're just, I mean, he didn't have any fibrosis in the heart, so it didn't look like he had a heart attack as the immediate cause of death, but he was going to have one soon, basically. Right. Um, but but yeah, I think that he, he took the drugs and passed out, and then he had some- signs that he drowned underwater was taking some breaths underwater so there was a little bit of not a lot though there was a little bit of pulmonary edema with with some foam and he had in the petrous bone some hemorrhage too so they they concluded that that was a contributing factor to his death tell me about the petrous bone thing so you can see hemorrhage in that bone in drowning cases, but it's not like if you see it, that doesn't mean the person drowned. But that, along with other gross findings, could indicate that that he drowned. But he didn't have like typically if a person just primarily drowned, you would see a lot of foam in the airway right. because of their last breaths. But he was probably already his respiratory rate was probably already so low when he went into the water. So that's why there wasn't that much of it. And obviously he had super high levels in his blood that you would see in a patient that was under anesthesia. So, and in his stomach contents as well, they found, they found remnants of it. So, which wow. means that he took it, sh you know, shortly before his death, a, a high dose of it. Right. And you get that, sort of that adrenaline blood pressure spike and that's when you're going to get your arrhythmias and you know you don't have to have a heart attack for as you know that that'll do you in real really quickly too so but um is yeah, ketamine treatment f is that fda approved right now to for other than anesthesia like these it's it off just, label it's okay. off label approved yeah for rate for trigger resistant depression and pain 
It I just think, seems like it's like, you know how like Ozempic's in the news right now every day? It's it's like ketamine is. I think Christy Teigen said she did it and one of the housewives or something. It's like it's like the, all the rage now, all the celebrities are doing ketamine treatments. Oh, yeah. It's the, the ketamine uh, clinics are booming, doing a booming business. So the um, that's the problem when something gets trendy. It's you know, and people with addictions again, you want a quick fix. And there's also talk about well, um, it's just like the ayahuasca circles and that can uh, rapid opiate detox where you go in and get an IV of Narcan and reverse it, and now you're not an addict anymore. Or ayahuasca circles, and uh, you know you get the super hallucinogenic experience, and it's. I mean, generally, these things occur biologically, genetically, over time, related to, it's, it takes a long time. Well, it doesn't always take a long time to develop an addiction, but usually it's it's a complicated long-term process and recovery is too. It's one day at a time, but it's, you know, you just got to, you know, sit back and listen and um, accept that it's going to take a lot of restructuring of your life. It's very doable. Sobriety is... You know, a lot of people fail and they'll relapse. I mean, this guy, real what was he, a detox 60 times or something like that? So that's a, a little much. Yeah, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you. Is there a point where someone, I, I hate to say this, but is there a point where someone's brain is like damaged beyond repair to, for them to ever kind of have a normal life after struggling with an addiction like this? I mean, there was a point where he said he was taking 55 pills a day which is mind blowing to me because I've taken one Percocet and like thrown up all night. <laughs> right. But so again, I had a patient and I know this is the case. He was taking over a hundred Norcos a day. Right. And oh my God. Um, because I saw the, the receipt. Now he was ordering some on the internet. He was going to doctors, but he's still my patient. He's on, he's been on, you know, he's an older guy. He's been on Suboxone for, for you know, some years. He does have severe COPD, chronic pain. Lung, you know, lumbar stenosis and lumbar radiculopathy, blah, blah, blah. So he's really got pain and he's been stable. Um, but if you gradually increase your Tylenol, you know, the Tylenol in there um, is what's going to do you in. But if you gradually increase your Tylenol and your liver has the ability to, you know, produce more of the enzymes that metabolize it. Eventually, though, the kidneys, you get to a certain, I know it's like kill, how many kilograms of acetaminophen have gone through your kidneys and then boom, they're done. Um, but so it sounds crazy, but over time, people develop a tolerance and um, there you go. So it's, it's, it's true. I mean, one, you know, when I've had, when every, everybody's had a Norco or a Tylenol codeine. Boy, I'll tell you what, that stuff can make you nauseous real quick and you, you just, but it's like patients I've had, they're drinking, you know, a couple of liters of vodka a day for years and they're biology. It's not good for them, but you know, that it occurs over time. It's gradual. And it's when, when one of these patients that has the opioid addiction is used to getting high off of, let's say Vicodin or Percocet, and then they go to you and then they get this like subutex drug. Do, do they, are you saying that they still kind of feel the high, but it doesn't give them that, that feeling that they need to increase it more and more, which would, which would lead them to overdose. They so still feel when, high, right? When no, they no, 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 no. So, so 
basically you're supposed to be off of any opiate for 20, at least 24 hours when you start buprenorphine, suboxone, subject. Why is that? Because even though it doesn't, people say, well, it's a partial stimulator, a partial agonist. It's, it just works differently attaching to the opiate receptor. So, but it's, it, it like has the most attraction of any opiate. So if I've been taking four or 10 Norco a day, whatever, and I put some suboxone subutex under my tongue, it's going to displace all of the Percocet or oxycodone or hydrocodone. And even though you're attaching to the receptor, the opiate receptor, it, it stimulates it differently. So your body perceives it as withdrawal and gets super sick. I call precipitate withdrawal. Um, and the other situation, if you stop somebody's opiates for 24 hours, they're going to be in withdrawal. And then you give them the buprenorphine, the subutex, suboxone, whatever. And within minutes, their withdrawal abates. So it, it's, it's sort of, uh, you know, it's not intuitive at explaining it. It's like, so it's a partial agonist or is it a block? You're, oh, it's a blocker. Well, it attaches the receptor, but it, you know, it starts withdrawal, but you can treat withdrawal. You know what I'm saying? It can be a little confusing, but it's, uh, you know, it's an opiate. It has a high, high affinity for the receptor. So it'll displace any other opiate. And when it does so, then your body feels like it's in withdrawal, even though it's it's uh, attaching. But if you wait for somebody to be in withdrawal and you give it to them, it will resolve the withdrawal within minutes. So now, what if like a normal? One... Sorry, the, the last name. So I said people can inject it. Okay, like I said, when you would start injecting things, it's not like taking it properly. So the art, you know, I've heard all the arguments against. Oh, it's an opiate. You're, you know, you're not sober. You're not clean when you're using. But. um, if you take it properly, now they say one to two percent of people will say, uh, "Oh, it makes me relaxed, or it get, gives me energy." So those are people that you probably don't want to use suboxone or buprenorphine in recovery. So it's it's one of those things. It's just like some people will take. I mean, it's not a great analogy, but some people will say, "Yeah, I took, you know, I took Motrin and I I got a mood altering effect." So a variety of things can give you a mood altering effect and some people get very attached to it. Um, so, but it's very rare. It's very rare that, you know, buprenorphine, I've had patients take double, you know, they're, they try to get high on it. They'll take the maximum 32 milligrams a day. They'll get the prescription, take 64 milligrams a day. And I mean, I've had that happen and, uh, you can't give them an early refill and they come in and I say, well, so what did you feel? Well, I, it didn't work. I didn't get high. I didn't, you know, it was a waste of, time and i'll never do it again whatever so it's and it's again the binding characters we're in the you know the ventral tegmental area whatever the the midbrain reward areas it has very little activity there so so if so if a person like myself took that drug what would 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 i feel anything or you probably well okay it is an opiate so if you're opiate naive and it depends on the dose you took it's just like if you injected it i said if I injected into myself, would it stop my breathing? No. If it was a sole agent. Now, if I had a few beers and you inject the dose. But if you if you took eight milligrams, I mean, we start somebody that's in withdrawal, we'll give them two, four milligrams uh, under the tongue. And if if I just did that right now, I probably initially I'd get euphoric. Okay. I've had patients tell me they were big pot smokers. Uh, they had a bunch of THC in their system. They came in for induction and, and afterwards to say, you know, doc, that stuff, I did get a, you know, 
when I had the, uh, when I was using pot and again, you have patients that you, you get them off the fentanyl and, and you know, you're, you're working with them and they're, and you drug test them and it comes back for THC. You don't want patients to, we're sort of harm reduction. That's my philosophy. I mean, I don't want them smoking pot, but I've had patients tell me if I'm smoking some potent pot and I'm taking Suboxone, I do get a buzz and that's not good. So, but it's it just in and of itself, 98% of people do not get a mood altering effect when taken within the dosage range. It's approved. So now does this drug help with pain? Oh yeah. Yeah. So why, it's, so my obvious question is then if this is safer, why isn't this drug? That pain? is, that is a great question. <laughs> and I, for my, uh, so here's what, what happens now. Um, the pain physiology and the you know pain fibers and pathways and different types of pain are really really much better understood now than they were even you know five ten years ago right and super a lot of complexities there it, it turns out buprenorphine you know if you if you have pain in your foot or your back or your hand the fibers go to your spinal cord, the dorsal, the back of your spinal cord has transmission nerve centers and sends the signal up. So buprenorphine blocks pain more in the spinal cord, right? Much, not so much up in the brain, sort of a crude way of explaining it. Um, and that's doesn't have as much activity, the respiratory center, but it's so currently, according to the medical literature, if someone needs a daily opiate chronically for bonafide pain, whether or not they have an addiction history, then the first line medication is buprenorphine. Why isn't, why isn't that done? I, I, um, I was talking to somebody today. Uh, I've talked to people at other academic centers. I was talking to somebody at a Ivy League program back East today for about an hour. And we, we share the same frustration. It's if it's first line, if it's a, first of all, safety first Hippocratic oath, right? So I don't, I've been pain medicine in my facility, large organization on Wednesday and Thursday. I'm not a pain doctor. I just get referred pain doctors say, Hey, can you see, uh, you know, Mr. Smith, he's been on hundred milligrams of morphine and 40 and Norco for 20 years. And we, we've tapered him. Now the pain's, um, unbearable or, you know, we need to detox this for whatever it is. I, I just get patients that are already on opiates and is buprenorphine a safer opiate? Yes. So what the literature says, is that it's we're not for starting people on opiates for chronic pain. Not a good, not a good medication for chronic pain, right? But if someone's already on it, it's like, why not? If it's safer, why not at least try to switch them and then either taper them off the buprenorphine or, you know, if they do need a chronic opiate, use buprenorphine. But there's a lot of... Um, a lot of pain specialists that are boards. Now I'm not a board certified pain specialist, so I get into it with some of these guys. Uh, it's then it, the, one of the reasons is because what's the first thing if you say buprenorphine? People, I don't know what that is, but the average person has heard of Suboxone, right? Subutex. Yeah. They go, well, that's an op- it's an opiate for for addicts, right? Well, it's it's buprenorphine. That's the opiate. Well, well, an opiate's an opiate, and that's for addicts. And if you're giving that to pain patients, then yeah, you know, you're a quack. I mean, I've gotten called it. Oh, I, Ed, you know, I've got probably 150 patients that I'm with the pain physicians. I'm not going out recruiting people. I don't, I don't start it. Uh, in rare cases, there's a low dose butrans patch. If 
the primary care or pain physician says, I think this patient does need an opiate, then, you know, I, I will work with them, but I'm not out there starting pain patients on it. But anybody that's listening to this, if you are on it, if you're on Norco, you're on morphine, uh, it, it's just, if, you know, if there's a, if there's a dangerous or there's a, like I use the example, if I talk to doctors and they say, if you have a patient on amiodarone, it's, it's a great medication, cardiac medication for certain arrhythmias, but it is rough, rough to manage, um, sort of toxic, uh, you know, not toxic, but it, so what I tell them, if they're a safer antiarrhythmic came out and, and it was documented just the physiology of it, the pharmacology of it, it's safer, does the same thing. And five years from now, you still had them on amiodarone. What would your defense be? There's no defense. So what I tell patients- It's pain just like a stigma say, of the drug, basically. Exactly. So, right. And so I was talking to somebody at one of these university programs because I was um, I was in fear of losing my job because they said, you're an addiction medicine doctor. Why do you have 40 people on this for chronic pain? And I said, well, they were sent to me. They were on morphine, fentanyl, whatever. And they told me to detox them. Well, you know, and this, when this stuff came out in the higher dose form, the Suboxone about 2002, a lot of us got, and it, it wasn't just me, obviously it was a lot of anybody that did addiction medicine and worked in a, in a medical system, it, you know, I work with an integrated pain program. So we have psychiatry, addiction, clinical pharmacy, physical medicine, psychiatry, addiction, but we're all, so they'll say, you're the one you, this pay, we don't want this patient on the opiates. Can you tape or detox them? But a lot of the patients would say to me, to other doctors working in pain clinics, hey, that buprenorphine stuff worked great for my pain. I could think straight. I could function again. And I didn't feel like I was taking anything. So when you switch people about, you know, there's a, in our, a great article in the doc is uh, you know, published a lot. He says a third, a third, a third. A third of people on chronic opiates that need to be on, on or felt to need to be on something that's strong for pain. A third of them, it's life changing to put them on the buprenorphine. A third, it's, you know, it's okay, may not be as well received. And a third, issues. It's an opiate, nausea, dizziness, you're tired before it helps the pain. Um, so, you know, I'm a therapeutic nihilist. I think get the less meds, the better. But if you're going to, then again, I just work with pain physicians and we try and get people off the opiates. Um, but if they're, you know, there's a lot of people committing suicide too, because the six, seven years ago, the, the CDC said, get people at 90 or less MME, morphine milligram equivalent. So one milligram of oxycontin, I mean, of oxycodone is like one and a half of morphine. One of hydrocodone or Norco is like one of morphine. One of dilaudid is like four of morphine. So you calculate what your equivalent in morphine milligrams is. And if they're over 90, oh, got to taper them. Well, what if they were, you know, I had a lady who's on 140 milligrams of morphine for 20 years. She's 70 years old. And suddenly the doctor's like, I don't want to lose my license. I got to get you below 90. No talk about risk benefits. So in, in the literature, it does, it says, look, definitely over 50 MME, 50 milligrams equivalent of morphine, the risk of respiratory depression is, you know, there's a higher death rate. So you certainly not only want to get them below 90, but under 50 and opiates are not a great chronic pain medication. But in the, in the interim, if they need to be on an opiate or if they're on one and you want to get them off it, uh, why not switch to something safer? So that, so that's my, my argument. It's not for everybody, but it's, 
you're, you hit it on the head, but there's, there's a stigma and one Ivy League academician who I contacted because I was like, hey, I'm going to get fired for what I'm doing, but I think I'm doing the right thing. He said, you know, he said, uh, I said, why is this? And this was probably six, seven years ago. I was talking to this guy and he said, well, look at the money that Big Pharma puts into buprenorphine. Where is it? It's like 99% for use for addiction and stuff. And he said, unfortunately, a lot of doctors get their information from drug detail people or, you know, you watch TV. Well, there's not much Suboxone being advertised on TV, but just the information out there disseminated to doctors. If they hear about buprenorphine, they're hearing about Suboxone. And I get, I get referrals. Can you talk to Mr. Jones about Suboxone? And I'll go, no, I can talk to him about buprenorphine. <laughs> yeah. So it's, you just uh, basically have to rebrand it. <laughs> You well, need to contact yeah. them and say, like, it's, let's call it something else. And it's it's off-label FDA approved Suboxone Cybutex for for chronic pain, right? And the problem is in this country, the higher dose forms are Suboxone Cybutex. So, like Medicare, DHHS put out a, 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 a sort of a pain management bulletin. I think it was 2017 or 18 uh, or 2019 September. But basically, they, they had a, a flow diagram and they said, well, and this is DHHS and then the VA and Department of Defense in January. But basically, their guidelines were if somebody needs to be on an opiate, you know, try and get them off the opiate, opiate's not great. It's really not good for chronic pain. But go with buprenorphine if to either detox them or if you choose to maintain them on an opiate. Medicare does not pay for the higher dose forms. So you have somebody that's 66 years old. You've gotten them off their, their, you know, fentanyl patch and their Norco, and then they go to fill the prescription and the pharmacy goes up. Oh, you got Medicare part D. You have to have an addiction diagnosis for us to pay for your Suboxone or side effects. It's, and yeah, yet it's, they just want people to die so they don't have to pay for them anymore. That's, well, that's the government, my theory. the government. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's mean, a, a whole other, they, a, a whole other episode, Bruce. <laughs> yeah. Get or get Kennedy on here. I'm sure that guy's. Got some uh, interesting. Some, you need a contrarian. You need a a shit stirrer. But yeah, anyway. I mean that would be, that would be fun actually to to hear that. But Chris, I, I think that yeah. I mean I'm one of these people that are just like yeah. There's the whole entire time you're talking about this. I'm like there's there's absolutely no reason except these barriers of of and it has to do with money being made right. Like that's how I look. Well, at I'm it. telling you. I guarantee you, I don't know how many people you have listening when this thing airs or is dropped, but you will get just a shitload of coups. That doctor doesn't know what he's talking about, or he's he's a shill for the drug companies. That's the worst. You know, I have had, if you go to drugs.com, I mean, there's a billion pages, but there's one there that says, buprenorphine should not be used for pain. It's a terrible pain drug. So when I get a referral, you know, from the pain doctors, probably off three or four tomorrow, tomorrow. Say Tuesday, Wednesday. And I spent, and, and you know, my organization's great. They give me an hour to talk to them. And then I will spend an hour and, and I don't know what I'm getting. Some of them are fit to be tied. They've had their opiate tapered. Others are, um, I don't know who you are. I don't know what this medication you're talking to me about is. But And I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to get, you know, punched in the face or yelled at. But I say, well, you know, there's, they say, well, they said you're talking to me about Suboxone. And, and, I'll say, I want your family, anybody has your nose in your medical business, I'll talk to you about this medication. Um, but 
I explain what I, I tried my best, like we were talking about today, how it's different, how it's better if you're not on any opiate, blah, blah, blah. And, and I've had family members and then I'll, I won't prescribe it until I, a week later, I'll say, I want to meet with you again in the family, bring questions. And it's, it's really a shame. It's, there's so much misinformation and, you know, people that are suffering in, in pain, I'll tell you what, yeah, it's, it's really one of the most underserved communities of patients in medicine. I mean, you know, because it's so frustrating for doctors. How, what do you do with these people? You know, you can't give them opiates. They have something called the beers list, B-E-E-R-S. I think it's a Dr. Beers. It's got nothing to do with drinking beer. And it, it's been around since the 90s. The beers list are medications you shouldn't give people over 65. Uh, there's antibiotics on there. This, it's it, muscle relax, smooth muscle relaxants, opiates. It's, it, it's really the hands of pain physicians are, are more and more tied. That's why things like ketamine infusions, um, you know, you're able to do that. At, at, you know, you're not sending them home with it. Well, in some cases they have, but that's available too. Anyway, I'm rambling. No, this is really, this is really good information because I think that a lot, even I just did a post on, on my website, the gross room about Matthew Perry's death, like a more in, um, just a dissection of the, of the autopsy report. And a couple people had made comments under there that they are chronic pain patients and they took, they were taking a uh, hydrocodone every day. Like the one woman had said that she was taking three a day. And that kind of surprised me because I, I, I think it's, it's almost a perfect drug that it could have the effect of the opioid, but not make a person addicted as addicted to it maybe and high and able to function. I don't, I don't see why you, know, you wouldn't go with that. Oh, does, like subutex or so. Yeah. Right. Right. I, um, so I don't, it's interesting. I don't know. But, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I've had, I've had pain specialists say, well, they can only use it for pain if they have an addiction. They can only use it for pain if they don't have an addiction. They can, <laughs> it's just, well, okay. Um, yeah, it's it's, it's, it's really weird that 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 they would want the patient to take the the other one that could potentially give them addiction. You don't want to wait till a person gets the addiction. Maybe you want to yeah. prevent them from getting it. The other one is kratom. You've heard of kratom, right? No, I've never heard of that. What's that? Kratom. I you know we're, I mean we've been seeing that for years and years. So kratom is a it's sold as a tea or a powder or a pill, and it's derived from a plant that's similar related to the coffee plant and okay um it is a it's sort of like tramadol it's it binds the opiate receptor the mu receptor but it also has nsri activity nor norepinephrine serotonin reuptake like effects or cymbalta so you know tramadol is an interesting opiate it, and if you take too much tramadol you have a seizure right why is that well it's because it's like, you know, Effexor's a norepinephrine serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So you, you take a bunch of Effexor and you get too much adrenaline in your brain, you have a seizure. So this, this Kratom stuff, you know, it, I mean, it, it's available in head shops in a variety of places. It's still legal, but it's mu receptor, opiate. It has opiate activity and NSRI activity. So it's considered by a lot of people to be an herb, it's herbal, it's safe, and it's, oh, we see, we're seeing more and more of it in terms of, it. I mean, it's like an over-the-counter tramadol, basically. So, oh, my so that God. Was, 
as far as the opiate. And this issues. is something you could just get at like a, a place that sells vitamins or something. Unfortunately, yeah, you go you go to the places that sell the uh, the bongs and the and the vapes, and yeah, but it's it's an opiate. It's bad. It's bad news. And then it's perceived as it's sort of like, well, it's Eastern medicine. You know, you you doctors are prescribing all these other things, and it's it's not dangerous. And but I've had, you know. It's, so is it's opium. opium. <laughs> I've had, I had a patient spending 15,000 bucks a month for his Kratom. You get tolerance, you get into, into major. And then when you stop, you get antidepressant withdrawal, right? Because it's, it's got just as much activity as taking effects or some ball to those kind of, those kind of prestige, the NSRI um, thing. So Kratom, that's the other opiate that that we're seeing. I can't wait to look into that more. That's really interesting. Yeah, K-R-A-T-O-M. Don't. (laughs) Yeah, we're not not trying to push it. We're trying to tell you not to do it. It's not good. All right, so to wrap this up, uh, all right, go ahead. So the last thing is, so doing adolescent addiction medicine, you know, they'd send you out. um, They used to send me out with this guy that was a character actor. And I remember they'd send us to all kinds of school. But I was reading all the prevention literature and it turned out Kids in especially middle school that got, you know, when they, they'd have the uh, drug recognition do- uh, cop come in or whatever, and they'd pass around the pod or the, the dare different- t-shirts and everything. Right. But when they, they pass around, like, this is what a joint looks like. They had this, this thing in a box and it said, here's a needle, here's a joint. So they found that when kids got information and, um, were, they were essentially desensitized and those lectures there versus not getting uh, information, they, their drug usage would go up. It would put them more at risk because they were desensitized. Like, oh, that's what a joint looks like. Oh, that's LSD looks like. So Yeah, like you're actually was, teaching them how to use drugs. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, it's like, uh, you know, they're, they're natural. Any kind of fear they had was sort of uh, dissolved and they're like, oh, that doesn't look, that doesn't look bad. So, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my All God. right. Well, so if you had my last question for you is if you had like a magic wand and you, you've seen all of these people addicted to to opioids, is there something I mean, obviously, we might have already talked about this, that we have this one drug that you don't think is being utilized a, as well as it should be. But is there anything else that's like blatantly obvious that's going on with with either just the government's response or how we've gotten to this point that I I feel like it's worse than anything I've ever seen. I mean, you know, you're familiar with Philly. We have huge no. problem here, like huge in Kensington, um, just street and in Camden too, where my husband works. Just I go visit my husband at the firehouse and there's just people lined on the street, standing up, nodding off. And it's, it's just terrible. How, yeah. how did we, get to this point and how do we go away from it? Well, I mean, you know, you can get into the politics of it, but the permissive, um, you know, I was talking to, there's no, there's no fundamental objective truth. It's like, I was talking to somebody that was in some sort of social service thing. And I said, well, somebody's psychotic and they're running down the road naked thinking that they're God. Wouldn't it be better if they were on medication and, and sort of, put in a, some sort of mandatory, well, maybe they're happier that way. You know, it's like, wait a second. So the bottom line is homeless. Here's the, here's the simple solution. 
addict forced treatment of the addiction or the recognition of the mental mental health addiction. That's what you got to treat. You give them needles. You give them a safe place. You give them drugs to use. That's insane. That's effing insane. So we know what it takes. We know what's the problem with these people. That it's not capitalism. I saw some moron from San Francisco. It's capital capitalism. They're freaking addicts. They have a drug addiction. You ask any addict. The only thing that saves a drug court getting locked up, you're you're decoricated. You know, it's like when you have those frogs and you pit them and they still move around. That's what these guys are. Once you're addicted, especially meth, high potency stuff, meth and coke and and opiates, they they can't choose. And then you put them and they're out on the street. They're they're all tri diagnosed. I mean, there's psychiatric issues. They have health issues by that point. I mean, physical issues, but psychiatric addiction, you can't, you have to step in and mandate or give them a chance where they can, you know. So anyway, that's, that's the bottom line with homelessness. And I don't know why, um, you know, these arguments that it's, it's, uh, finance, it's inequities and financial things, uh, 90% of these people have psychiatric and or addiction, addiction and or psychiatric. And, you know, you don't. You know, you can give them all the money in the world, all the food. It cracks me up when they distribute turkeys at Thanksgiving to the homeless population. It's yeah, it, it is crazy. You're you're just like you're you're missing the point, people. <laughs> and I'm I mean, seeing it, it, feel, my it feels filter. good in the moment, you know. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you have to have compassion. But if you know, if you know that if you stick their head in a brain scanner, which you can't reduce everybody down to a lab animal, but once they've been that intense. In stimulation of their reward center, drug, reward, drug. They can't, they can't. It's like they, somebody that's starving and there's food there. Are, you know, are they going to put clothes on or eat the food? Are they going to, you know what I'm saying? It becomes their, it's, it's an existential thing, right? They talk about existential crisis. Like they got to get the drug. They can't make the choice themselves. And uh, so homeless popular, if I had a magic wand, I, you'd, it, Get these people the help they they really need and and mandate it. So you know okay. what's interesting? You have like a really different because like right now I just went outside to go get my mail and it feels like it's about to snow. It's freezing outside here in Philadelphia area, and you guys have like this beautiful weather all the time. Michelle told us it was like seventy and sunny and out, and you have. You have people that are are flocking to live there, a huge homeless population. We we do too here, but not anything like what you guys have. It's just different here. Um, but the I don't know if you've seen there's there was this one, I don't know if it was a YouTube or Instagram account that was called Kensington Beach. And it was this guy that was just going and filming all of these people. It, it it looks like the zombie apocalypse. It is just, right. it's insane what's going on in Philadelphia area right now. Um, and I don't, I don't necessarily think that, that there, that it's a huge homeless situation there. I mean, there's definitely a lot of it, but not anything like we're seeing in California, but the, the drugs, I mean, there's people there that have necrotic legs wounds open wounds with maggots on them just on the street nodding off it's just absolutely insane what's going on there right it's like where does compassion uh what is com- real compassion for someone sometimes you know 
helping them. Yeah, giving them. them clean needles is not helping them. Like, oh. I mean, uh, obviously, like it's, it's just not helping them. You no, could say no. that. And, it's... Yeah, and certainly they've been, maybe they were victims of the system at one point, but um, yeah, you just talk to people that have been homeless and then got sobriety and got mental health care. They're not going to be endorsing safe injection places and, um, you know, providing, providing shelter, let them live in, you know, here's a place they can sleep, but you're not treating their addiction or their mental health issue. You're really just, you know, you're contributing to their demise. I yeah. And who I cares if, it's also, I mean, who cares if they're using clean needles though, because if they're, if they're never going to have a quality of life, like what's the difference if they get HIV, really think about that. If they're just going to be living like zombies on the street, who cares if they get infectious diseases if they're never going to have a good quality of life? I mean, that yeah, the ultimate well, goal should be for them to to have a good quality of life. Yeah. Well, pathologists are seeing stuff they haven't seen in a hundred years, right? A lot of. Oh yeah, I'm hearing some crazy stuff. <laughs> yeah, where they didn't. The system caught things early enough, but these people, they're, you know, they're dis the diseases are, it's, it's sort of like a fourth world nation where things just, there's no intervention for it, you know? Yeah, it's, it's incredibly sad. Lunatics well, thanks rise. so much for being here with us today. This was great. It's, a, it's very informative because this is so outside of my normal realm of knowledge and, uh, you taught us a lot. It was really good. Oh, well, great. Any, any, you know, bad feedback you get about me, please don't tell me. I'm very sensitive to criticism. <laughs> All right, I Bruce, I'll talk to you later. Thank you for listening to Mother Knows Death. As a reminder, my training is as a pathologist assistant. I have a master's level education and specialize in anatomy and pathology education. I am not a doctor and I have not diagnosed or treated anyone, dead or alive, without the assistance of a licensed medical doctor. This show, my website, and social media accounts are designed to educate and inform people based on my experience working in pathology so they can make healthier decisions regarding their life and well-being. Always remember that science is changing every day and the opinions expressed in this episode are based on my knowledge of those subjects at the time of publication. If you are having a medical problem, have a medical question, or are having a medical emergency, please contact your physician or visit an urgent care center, emergency room, or hospital. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Mother Knows Death on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere you get podcasts. Thanks.